Welcome to the Acast. I am Aaron James Nicholas. I had the incredible opportunity to teach in the main auditorium at Crossroads Community Church the past couple of weekends. We've been studying through Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I was able to lead the study on Solomon's test of time and Solomon's test of relationships. So over the next couple of casts, I want to share these two sermons with all of you faithful Yakast listeners. I hope you find them edifying and enjoyable. You guys ready to get started? Awesome, let's do this. Open your Bibles or swipe in your electronic devices to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to study Solomon's test of time. So let's read together Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter today, but I want to start with just the first nine verses. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to speak and a time to keep silence, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? Solomon seems like he'd be a fun guy to hang out with, right? Yeah, kind of a kind of a downer a little bit. I won't say that this is a comprehensive list of human experience, but I think Solomon really hits the nail on the head. He paints a pretty stark picture, a pretty clear picture actually, of what life, what our existence kind of looks like. He really captures for us the tension of human existence. Because I don't think anyone here would reject any of Solomon's perspective in these verses. We live in an age where the entire world seems like it's just one big community. I could Google on my phone right now to find people birthing, planting, healing, building, laughing, dancing, gathering, embracing, seeking, keeping, sowing, in silence, loving, and living in a relative peace. And simultaneously, and perhaps more unfortunately and easily, I could Google to find people dying, killing, breaking down, weeping, mourning, pushing people away losing, tearing, speaking, full of hate and war. In our day and age, it's perhaps easier than it's ever been to see the extremes of life that people live in every single day. So we can easily relate to Solomon's observations in these verses, can't we? Because we observe them for ourselves in our own life. And I think this leads us to really our first observation about Solomon's test of time, our existence is tension. So I'm still a kid in a lot of ways. I have a lot of life to still live, hopefully, God willing. But even I, in the midst of the tension of life, have exhaled in exhaustion at times and thought to myself, what is the point? What do I even get out of all of this life, all of this tension? Because everything comes to an end. What worked today is going to fail tomorrow. The people I thought I knew are strangers to me now. My best efforts a year ago seem ridiculous, even wasted to me now. 
And sometimes it feels like we're never gonna have any peace without a little bit of war. We're never gonna have silence with so many people speaking. Or perhaps even more depressing and intense is the thought and feeling that if you want to know what love is, you have to know hate. Or the reality that you can't sow what isn't already torn or heal what isn't dying. And a lot of times when I'm talking to people, we'll laugh, right? But it feels like we're just laughing to keep ourselves from crying. Sometimes it feels like we're building just to tear down so we can build again. I think all of us understand this tension in life. We feel it. We experience it, right? It takes a little proving. But the thing that's so baffling and the thing that I think should bother us more from this passage in Ecclesiastes follows after these first nine verses. In Ecclesiastes 11, Solomon says this, or 3.11 says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Like how could Solomon write that, right? Like the wise king has to have made a mistake on this point because we were tracking with him up until that moment, right? Because our own experience of life seems to contradict this idea. When has dying, killing, breaking down, weeping, mourning, pushing people away, losing, tearing, hate, and war ever been beautiful? Read the rest of verse 11 here. God has put eternity into man's heart. On the pendulum of life, in moments of good and bad, in seasons of highs and lows, in the tension of human existence, are we going to throw our hands in the air and surrender ourselves to this idea that our time here on earth, the tension of life's existence, is all we have? Or will we trust that God is using eternity to make everything beautiful in its time? This is Solomon's test of time. But this isn't an easy test for us to overcome because there's a significant problem with life as we know it. It's temporary when compared with God's eternity. Look at what Solomon says in the rest of verse 11. God has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The problem with human existence, with our life being temporary, is that we're never going to be able to see and understand the big picture. We can look at human history, but we'll find beauty and tragedy in the wake of beauty and tragedy. And even in our own lives, it seems like we're the result of a lot of things going right and some things going wrong too, right? The cultivation of fallen people trying to live life without God while God takes the loose strands of our mistakes, our hangups, and our brokenness and slowly weaves them together into this beautiful tapestry that reveals his majesty. It's impossible for us as humans to understand the work of God in his sovereignty and transcendence, how he is outside of time making everything beautiful. Solomon says this in verse 14, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. Solomon tells us that this profound work of God 
of making everything beautiful, cannot be stopped, endures forever, and is complete. And that that should cause us to fear him, that should lead us to worship him, to bow in reverent awe of who he is and what he has done and what he is doing. But it should also, at the same time, remind us that we are not God, right? And this is our, third, our second observation here. We are beasts with eternity in our hearts. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. That's verses 18 through 20. And what throws me every time I read that passage is that little part there at the beginning, that God is testing us. Right? Like, all of life's tension, the beauty and the order intermingled with the chaos and destruction and devastation is a test of God. Every time I read that, it seems like it's a little bit cruel, right? Like, if all of this is just a test. So to understand Solomon and what he's talking about here, to really understand how this can be a test and not be cruelty, we have to understand the context. And I think we find that context at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, we see this, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, the context of Solomon's test here, this test of God, is that humanity has fallen into this tension of life. We exchange the knowledge of God for a knowledge of life's tension, good and evil. We exchanged eternal life the tree of life, the spirit of God, the knowledge of God's work, participation and cooperation in God's work for death. So we are left utterly destroyed people, but with the longing for eternity that we lost. We are left like beasts. We live and we die like beasts because what separated us from the beasts at creation was the image of God. But by the grace and mercy of God, that image left a little mark of eternity on our heart. All of us can still feel that we are supposed to be something more, that we are a people made in the image of our creator, the image of God. But if we fail to live up to that eternity, that longing in our heart, we are nothing more than the beasts. This is that testing that Solomon is trying to get at and trying to get us to understand. The test of time, the test of eternity. And this test can lead us to eternal hope or utter hopelessness. Solomon connects this eternity in our hearts to our hope in God. It's almost like he's asking a question. Will we hope in the profound work of God making everything beautiful? Will we believe that the beautiful, redemptive work of God cannot be stopped, endures forever, and is complete? 
Will we let the eternity in our hearts overtake us with a fear of God, with reverence and awe of who he is and what he is doing? Will we have hope in the grand work of God, even if we can't see it sometimes? You see, Solomon is setting us up here in Ecclesiastes 3. Because once he understood life's tension and the sovereign, transcendent, beautiful work of God in the midst of it, he asks a very important and I believe prophetic question. In Ecclesiastes 3, this is verses 21 through 22, he says this, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? And then here it is, the question. Who can bring man to see what will be after him? Who can reconcile the beast and the image bearer? Who can give eternity back to us and fulfill the longing of our eternal heart? Who can give us the knowledge of God back? Who can seal the spirit of man with the spirit of God again? Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Hold your place in Ecclesiastes 3 and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Because I believe at this moment in Peter's life, he becomes a perfect example of Solomon's test of time. Peter is the first disciple to call Jesus the Christ to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And for that confession, Jesus says this to him, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus knew that only God could have given Peter the eyes to see that he was the son of the living God, the incarnation of Yahweh, God in the flesh, the most miraculous, paradoxical, living, breathing, divine tension that has ever entered into our existence or ever will. The God-man, Jesus. But then this happens, and it throws me every time I read this chapter. Immediately after this, Peter's God-revealed confession, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, same guy, <laughs> took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Did you catch what Jesus just said there? Peter was setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And you can almost process along with Peter, right? Suffering and dying? Jesus, that can't be right. What are you talking about? When has dying, killing, breaking down, weeping, mourning, pushing people away, losing, tearing, hate, and divine war ever been beautiful? So naturally, Peter pulls Jesus aside, right? Hey, we need to talk. And rebukes him. Oh no, far be it from you, this can't be so. 
And Jesus calls him Satan, which I just think is hilarious. That's just so intense. The adversary, right? The one who stole eternity from humanity in the first place. The one who convinced us that the knowledge of life's tension, this knowledge of good and evil, was worth losing our knowledge of God. In Matthew 16, we get a bird's eye view of Peter wrestling with that knowledge of God in the knowledge of good and evil. The eternity in Peter's heart is telling him that Jesus is God, that Jesus can save the world, that Jesus is the one who can bring man to see what will come after him, that he will be able to bring humanity to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven again. But the beast in Peter cannot let go of the tension that life has cultivated inside of him. Peter just can't let go of that knowledge of good and evil, the beauty and the chaos, and trust God. Trust that eternity in his heart. And Jesus, man, Jesus, turns to his disciples and with a perfect understanding of Peter's struggle in this moment, of their struggle and of our struggle today, says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will truly find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus looks at the tension of human existence and asks, if you could have all of it, what good would it do you? if you lost eternity? Or in Solomon's words, what gain has the worker from his toil? Who can bring man to see what will come after him? Who can get us to see eternity? Jesus can. Jesus did. The cross of Jesus is a salvation that's founded upon the tension of life. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God will make everything beautiful in its time. From the moment Adam plunged all of us into this chaotic mess of life, of human existence, of tension, life without eternity, life without God, God knew exactly how he was even going to make death beautiful. God was going to use death to pay for our eternity. He was going to conquer death with resurrection and eternal life. He was going to use the death of Jesus to overcome Solomon's test of time. So for every season and for every matter under the sun, church, will we stand the test of time? Will we be a people that rests in the eternal hope of Jesus or in utter hopelessness? Will we be a church that rests in Jesus as the family of God, or will we be like beasts, longing for eternity, longing for a relief from all of this tension? Because this is the part about Jesus that I can never get over. And it's our third point. Jesus makes beasts beautiful. Jesus empties himself of everything that was his right as God and becomes like one of his creatures, like one of us, like one of the beasts. Jesus becomes one of us because we need hope 
that the tension of life that we live can have a purpose. Jesus becomes this hope for us. We need a hope that all of it, the good and the bad, will be made beautiful someday. That all of this will become the kingdom of heaven someday. Amen? But maintaining that hope takes a lot of faith because our lives can be full of frustration and anxiety and bitterness and hurt. Solomon gets this. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. That's verses 16 and 17. In the tension of human existence, where so much of what we experience doesn't make sense, doesn't seem fair, and doesn't seem to last, Solomon tells us to hold on to the reality that God will judge the world. And Jesus tells us to hold on to that reality as well. In Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And they saw it, man. The disciples saw the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Some of them saw the transfiguration of Jesus, the culmination of the law and the prophets. Some of them saw the resurrection of Jesus, him overcoming death in the grave. Some of them witnessed the ascension of Jesus into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And 120 of them witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and were given the Spirit of God to teach them guide them and fill them with the knowledge of God that we lost. And you and me, we're living in that kingdom today, living in the kingdom of God as it overtakes and conquers the tension of our world, living in the kingdom of God as he makes beasts beautiful, as God makes beasts his image bearers again, that will go and grow that kingdom of God throughout the world. And Solomon was able to tell us what this kingdom looks like in a chaotic world full of tension. It looks like you and I living for eternity. And this is point number four. We must live eternity in the tension. We need to be a church and a people that embraces the tension of life. Not pretending that everything is okay, pretending that there aren't any problems because Solomon has told us right here that there are gonna be times when things are not okay. There are going to be problems. There are gonna be issues. There are gonna be things that it feels like we can't overcome. But in those moments, we need to stand firm in the midst of life's tension and proclaim that Jesus overcomes all of it. Solomon, frustrated with this tension, says this, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made one as well as the other. It is good that you should take hold of this and from that not withhold your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. 
But it's easy to talk about this, right? But what does it look like practically? Well, Solomon gives us three verses that I think, especially when we look at them through the lens of the gospel, can help us to come to some conclusions about how we are supposed to live eternity in the tension and withstand Solomon's test of time. Conclusion number one, be joyful. In verse 12, he says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful. James, the brother of Jesus and one of the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem had some incredible insight into this notion of joy in the midst of tension. To a persecuted church, James writes this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We overcome the test of time with joy because we know that God is making everything beautiful and that he is bringing his kingdom here. Now, joy doesn't mean you're always going to be laughing and dancing. You don't want to see me dance. Joy doesn't mean that you'll be spared from seasons of weeping and mourning. Even Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, knowing full well that Lazarus was about to be resurrected, that God was going to make that death beautiful. He still wept. But joy comes from the steadfast knowledge that in laughing or weeping, dancing or mourning, God is going to use eternity to make everything okay to make everything beautiful in its time. Conclusion number two, do good. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to do good as long as they live. If you remember those verses from Ecclesiastes 7 I pulled from a little bit earlier, in the broader context, we actually show that Solomon's a little frustrated about this idea to do good. Because with Solomon's understanding of the Old Testament, where good was how well you obeyed the law of God, Solomon saw that it was impossible for anyone to measure up to God's standard. That in fact, the good that the law required of him actually destroyed him. I think the Apostle Paul describes this phenomenon really well in Romans 7. He says this, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. I love that. It's so funny to me, right? If I didn't know I was doing wrong, it wouldn't necessarily have been wrong, right? Solomon and Paul saw that trying to live a good life through law is vanity. It ends up destroying you. But we already learned from Ecclesiastes that pleasure, toil, folly, and foolishness are vanity too. So this imperative, this command of Solomon to do good has to find its fulfillment in something that's greater. It has to be a greater kind of good than simply living for whatever we think is good. Because our good is a temporary good, an earthly good, a human good, a beastly good at times. What we need is a gospel good, an eternal good, an image of God kind of good. Romans 2, Paul writes this, for when those who do not have the law, by nature, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. 
Paul shows us that through Christ, there can be a kind of good that comes from the heart of who we are. That comes from who we are in Jesus. And on that day, Solomon talks about in Ecclesiastes 3, when God will judge the righteous and the wicked, those that have that law of God written on their hearts, those that have the goodness in them that can only come from him will find themselves living eternity in the kingdom of God. And for Solomon, doing that good, doing good is a lifelong effort in our purpose as the people of God. Conclusion three, in the midst of life's tension, we are to enjoy life. Everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man, verse 13. We've already studied through Solomon's test of pleasure, so I'll spare you some of this, but we know that pleasure alone is vanity. We've already seen it, that that's meaningless, that that will amount to nothing. So there has to be something more going on in this passage, right? Well, when I read it, I immediately thought of these sarcastic remarks that Paul makes to the Corinthian church in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink because tomorrow we're gonna die. <laughs> Some have no knowledge of God. Did you catch it though? It's kind of subtle. If the dead are not raised, but if we are a people called to live eternity in the tension, then we are a people that believe the dead are raised. We believe in resurrection. So we can enjoy life, the whole of human experience, all of this tension, because we have the knowledge of God in us that this is not the whole story, that this life is not the end, that tomorrow we aren't gonna die, tomorrow we live forever. Our true enjoyment in that moment is found in God because we know that he is gonna make everything beautiful. In conclusion four, rejoice. I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that it is his lot. Through our study of Ecclesiastes, we've seen that work is vanity unless we are working for the glory of God. So rejoicing in our work is also vanity unless we are rejoicing in a work that brings God glory. I think this is what Solomon is getting at. We must rejoice in our work as it glorifies God. Because when our work brings God glory, God makes our work divinely beautiful. When the work we do glorifies God, God makes it echo through the rest of eternity. And I think that that's something we should always rejoice in. You've been listening to another Down Temple devotional from the Yakcast, a young adult ministry of Crossroads Community Church. Crossroads meets at 1188 Park Avenue West in Mansfield, Ohio. And I know we'd love for you to come check out a service. You've been listening to Ecclesiastes, the test of time, one part of a multi-part series through the book of Ecclesiastes led by Pastor Dave Vance. You can go to crossroadswire.com to listen to the rest of the series. The primary text for today was Ecclesiastes chapter 3 in the English Standard Version. Listen to episode 8 of the AdCast to hear my second contribution to Crossroads' Ecclesiastes series, Solomon's Test of Relationships from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The music from today's AdCast was by me, Aaron James Nicholas, just something I threw together for this episode because it was a longer one. 
We have a new website for YA, yacrossroads.com. You should go check out that site. On my own website, I've started to post manuscripts of all of the sermons in Yakasts that we've thrown together thus far. So you should go check that out at AaronJamesNicholas.com, A-A-R-O-N-J-A-M-E-S-N-I-C-O-L-A-S.com slash writings dash Yakast. Thank you so much for listening to another Down Tempo devotional from the Yakast. <laughs>